the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is how humility works. He, in other words, he, he takes the truth and he fleshes it out for us. And he says, now you have the principles in verses 3 and 4, but let me tell you how it actually works. Let me give you an illustration. Let me take the supreme person of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, and show you how he humbled himself. And he, therefore, becomes the model for us, the example for us. Why would any sane person leave a highly paid position, leave their family and friends, leave even their heart language to live in an impoverished country, learn a new language, and work long, hard hours dealing with all sorts of struggles that, well, that they would never have to face at home? Why would a church ministry leader set aside the wonderful goals they are so passionate about in order to free up church resources for another ministry? And on the everyday level, why should we put up with slights and insults from people who seem to make a habit of rubbing us the wrong way? As we have been learning lately on Verse by Verse, Philippians chapter 2 has the answers to those questions and, just as importantly, keys to how we can achieve and maintain the humility that we need for church unity. Pastor Steve Kreloff has been the teaching pastor for over 27 years at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. His practical messages make the transition from pulpit to radio through the work of verse-by-verse ministries. To be a healthy church, a congregation must be a united church. As we have been moving through the second chapter of Philippians, we have been looking at the ingredients necessary for unity. Today and for the next few days, let's consider the ultimate expression of the humility we need. Today and for the next few days, let's consider the ultimate expression of the humility we need if we want harmony and unity in our churches. Here is Pastor Steve to begin our class. The world was left stunned by the announcement from King Edward VIII of England that he would abdicate his throne to marry an American divorcee. Now, while some people were fascinated with this story from a romantic angle, in fact, there's been movies made about this, most people at that time at least struggled to understand why a king would willingly step down from his throne because of his love for a person. They couldn't understand that. However, an even more amazing story of stepping down from a throne is the story that the Apostle Paul presents to us in Philippians chapter 2 of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, the King of the universe, the King of all, laying aside the splendor of his majesty and royalty to become a bondservant because he loved us. Now that really ought to leave us stunned because that's a far more amazing humiliation than King Edward VIII. Now, the story is presented by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, so I'd like you to turn there as we continue our study in the book of Philippians, Paul's 
letter to the church at Philippi, a church that he loved dearly, a letter centered around the theme of, of joy and of rejoicing. And in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he writes this, Have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Bible teachers commonly refer to these verses as the kenosis passage, the kenosis passage, because the Greek word kenosis means to empty, an emptying of self. And in this passage, we have Jesus Christ emptying himself when he left heaven and came to earth. Now, volumes, quite quite frankly and literally, volumes of books have been written on these verses and what they mean. As scholars and Bible teachers try to arrive at the precise theological meanings of almost all of these words in this passage, all the truths involved here. But I'm afraid that in spite of all that and the wonderful attempts to do this, and while this passage has been inspected and dissected and torn apart and put back together again, and all the theological intricacies have been studied, I'm afraid that often we miss the point of this passage. Keep in mind the context of Philippians 2 is unity, harmony, how Christians ought to get along with one another. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is calling for harmony and unity in the church. Apparently, the church at Philippi had some difficulties getting along with each other. The people had their rights, and they clung to those rights, and they didn't want to let go, and that's the context. And Paul speaks in the first four verses of he gives ingredients that produce a unified church. Notice with me, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... What is he doing there? He's speaking of the motives of unity. What he is saying is the word if is really the word since. They are ifs of theological certainty. Since these things are true, then since you are one with Christ, for instance, he says in verse 1, if there is any encouragement that comes from being in Christ, since there is encouragement that comes from being united with Christ, then be united with one another. Since there is incentive of love, a better word than consolation, an incentive of love, since there is an incentive that comes from from God showing you how much he loves you, then love others. That's his point. The motives of unity are found in verse 1, and they're theological. Since these things are true, and God has changed your life, and God has shown you how much he loves you, and you are one with his Son, then therefore live that way with one another. Secondly, in verse 2, he has spoken about the marks of unity. He writes, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. These are the marks of unity. When unity is clicking and when people are in harmony with one another in a church, you're going to have a, a like-mindedness. Not that they'll be in agreement on everything, but they'll be dominated by the, by the word of God. There'll be a submission to the authority of Scripture. There'll be a mind, a disposition, an attitude that says, if the word of God says this, and I submit to it. 
maintaining the same love, united in spirit, a, a oneness. Those are the, those are the marks of unity. Then in verses three and four, he tells us the method for achieving this unity. It's one thing to know all these things, but how do you actually arrive at this? And so he writes in verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the method for achieving unity. In other words, what he's saying is stop being preoccupied with yourself and your interests. Instead, put a high value on others and therefore take an interest in the things that are important to other people. Don't be self-censored, basically, is what he is saying. Now, Paul is simply telling them to have an attitude that the Greek world despised, and that is humility of mind. That's why he writes in verse 3, humility of mind. The Greek world, as I told you last week, despised this, this concept. The Greek world said, we are the superior people. Everyone else is barbarian, and we therefore know nothing of humility. We are the top people. Sort of like in our modern day view, in the modern day view of Adolf Hitler. The Germanic people, Germanic people, they were in his mind the superior race and they would uh, humiliate themselves for nothing. And so when Jesus came along teaching humility and servanthood, the Greek world despised that. They looked down upon that. They were repulsed actually by that. But Paul's point is that regardless of how a culture responds to it, that is the standard of God. But having told the Philippians what to do, now Paul follows up with an inspired illustration. And the illustration is of none other than, than Jesus Christ. He is the inspired illustration. He is the model for unity. He, it is the mind of Christ. This is how humility works. He, in other words, he, he takes the truth and he fleshes it out for us. And he says, now you have the principles in verses 3 and 4, but let me tell you how it actually works. Let me give you an illustration. Let me take the supreme person of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, and show you how he humbled himself. And he, therefore, becomes the model for us, the example for us. So by understanding his humility, we are taught how to relate to each other in the body of Christ. Now, that is the point of this passage. These verses simply flesh out for us what Paul means in verses 3 through 4. The way he is and has been in terms of humility is the way we are to be towards one another. It's a high standard, but that's what the scriptures teach. So Christ is presented to us as the perfect example of living out these truths. And that's why Paul begins in verse 5 where he says, Have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's his point. That's his exhortation. In other words, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus that's the whole point of this. Now, there are a lot of theological intricacies, and you can't go through a passage like this without dealing with that because you'll never understand the, the great depths of humility that were in Christ. But what we don't want to do is get lost in those theological intricacies. We don't want to just fill our heads with all the, the truths of Christ's deity and then never have it change our behavior and our hearts. So I hope you understand that we must address the theological intricacies, but we don't want to get lost in them. We don't want to lose sight of the meaning of this passage. If we want to apply a passage of Scripture to our lives, then it's obviously necessary that we grasp its meaning. Pastor Steve will take us there in just a moment. Before we continue, let's say hello to those who just joined us since the start of our class. 
You are listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve has been teaching since 1981 at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Chapter 2 of the Book of Philippians, learning about unity in the church. Now, let's get back to our class. Now, I want you to turn, just by way of, of introduction, to 1 John chapter 2. I read from this passage during the pastoral prayer. And I read from it because Jesus, or John rather, writes in chapter 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him. That is the professing Christian who says, I remain in Christ, I'm in him, I abide in him. John writes, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is to say, if you say, I'm a Christian, then John is saying, then you ought to act like a Christian. Then Jesus ought to be your model, your example for ethical behavior. It is one thing to claim to be a believer. It is another thing to say, I desire more than anything to be like Jesus. And so we certainly understand that we cannot copy the meaning of Christ's death. It is impossible for you and I to go to the cross and to die for the sins of the world. Easter time there, I saw in the newspaper, there are some people in the Philippines who is one woman who has herself crucified every year. Obviously, she doesn't die. I mean, they do things differently. They don't leave her up there. But but there's that mentality. We cannot do that. You and I can never duplicate, never reenact the death of Christ. You and I can never emulate the meaning of the cross. However, we, we can copy the attitude. We can emulate the attitude, the mind, the disposition that led to that sacrifice. And that is Paul's point. He's not saying that you've got to go and die. What he is saying is that the way you live ought to be influenced by Christ being an example. So this morning, what we want to do, we want to look at four qualities of the mind of Christ. Now, I want you to know, just by way of, of illustration, that these things are not easy. These things are not easy. Let me, let me uh, humble myself before you. All week long, I have, been, I have been thinking about this and studying this and dealing with the Greek text and, and studying volumes of commentaries and listening to tapes and praying this through. And uh, obviously, it is dealing with not being self-centered and thinking about others more important than yourself. Well, last night, we were, uh, my family is here, Michelle's family, and, and uh, we, were, uh, we were together playing a, a silly game, a marble game, and all of a sudden, I had a craving for these Pepperidge Farm cookies. I don't know if you've ever had Pepperidge Farm cookies, but these are, if you ever did, I will whet your appetite. These are the Milano cookies. It's a treat for me. Something came over me. I didn't tell them what I was doing, but I quietly, when it wasn't my turn, got up and went and got the... There were about four of them, four cookies. Now, what this passage is teaching is that I should have offered them to everyone else, but I didn't. I put one... I didn't even bring it to the table and munch on it. I I stuffed it in my mouth. I came back to the table and just, mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm. Finally, about the third, fourth one, they said, what are you doing? And said, I, uh, I'm eating cookies. <laughs> and they said, oh, are there some for us? No, I finished them. I said, there are some crumbs in, in the bottom, but they're in the garbage. I could get it for you. 
And then I turned to Michelle and I said, guess what I'm preaching about tomorrow? <laughs> now, I don't want, after we say all of these things, I don't want you to remember just that illustration. But I'm, I'm saying that to tell you that these things are not easy. Even when you've spent most of the week thinking about this, it is easy to stuff your face with Milano cookies and forget other people. And so by nature, by human nature, these things don't come naturally to us, but we need to constantly be reminded that you share cookies with others and hope that they say, no, you can have them. But you at least, at least ask them first. Four qualities of the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, first of all, is selfless. It is selfless. Paul writes in verse 6, just the beginning of it, who, speaking about Christ Jesus, let this attitude in yourselves be that, or have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. We want to stop there. Paul begins by taking us back to Christ's existence before the incarnation, before he, he came to earth, before he became a man. Christ's existence did not begin at Bethlehem. You must understand that. Christ's existence did not begin in Mary's womb. He is eternal. He has always existed. Always and that boggles our minds. You, you speak to a little child and they say, well, when did, when did Christ begin? Well, he had no beginning, but I don't understand. Join the club. No one can comprehend that. We all had a beginning, but he did not. However, before his birth, Paul tells us Christ existed in the form of God. Now, what does that really mean? In English, when we think of form, we think of outward shape, of size, of appearance. In fact, we even say an athlete might have good form. That is to say that his mechanics look good. Good form. However, the form of God has nothing to do with shape or size. Jesus said in John 4.24, he said, God is spirit. God is spirit. God does not have a body. God does not have a body. God is spirit. Now, let me, let me teach you something in case you don't know this already. When scripture refers, and it does, to the eyes of the Lord, it is not saying that God has literal eyes. God does not have a body. God is spirit. What is this, what do the scriptures mean by that? It is merely using human terms to describe a divine attribute. It means that he sees all. We understand that. Language has limitations. And, we use that, and the Spirit of God has led us to use that in the Scriptures. He's inspired His writers to, to use those terminologies, terminologies. The eyes of the Lord, he's, he's omniscient. He knows all, He sees all. His right hand, Scripture will refer to that, His right hand. It, it, it does not mean that God has a right hand and a left hand. It means that He has power, He has authority. We call these terms, and there are many in the Bible, the mouth of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, the feet of the Lord. We call these terms anthropomorphisms, and I'm not going to spell that out. Anthropomorphisms, which simply means qualities of God that are expressed in human terms. But God does not, in his, in his essence, have a body. So what does Paul mean by Christ existing in the form of God? Well, the Greek word form means and you should write this down because this is, this is important. This is a, a juicy theological truth. 
It means the outward display of an inward nature. The outward display of an inward nature. The eternal manifestation in keeping with his essence. In other words, before coming to earth, Jesus Christ outwardly radiated the glory of God because he is God by nature. That's what Paul means. He outwardly radiated the the glory of God because by his nature he is God. In other words, whatever the outward manifestation is, it corresponds to the inward nature. This word form is used, a certain form of the word form, is used in Romans chapter 12 when Paul says, be not conformed to this world. What does he mean by that? He means let your or don't let your outward behavior be inconsistent with your inward nature. You have had a change on the inside as believers. Now make sure that you don't live in a a life that is inconsistent with what you really are. That's the point here. What you are inwardly, you will and should be outwardly. What are you saying about Christ is this. One Bible commentator put it this way. He possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. He possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. In essence, what Paul is saying is this. Jesus Christ is God. Always has been. He is God. He is God by nature. And before the incarnation, before he came to earth, the very glory of God radiated from him. Now, you and I need to understand that Jesus is God. He is deity. Undiluted deity. Look at John chapter 1. In the Gospels account, John, who is living in a, in a, was living in a day and age where people were attacking the deity of Christ. They were called Gnostics. Not agnostics, but Gnostics, who said salvation is achieved by a certain higher knowledge. And so we term, we put Gnostics on them, Gnosticism because of knowledge. Gnosis. Knowledge. And John begins his gospel account by saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos of God, and the Word was with God, and then he makes this wonderful statement, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Very clear, very to the point, the Word was God. In Hebrews chapter 1, We don't need to turn there. There are a lot of verses we need to look at this morning. I'll just read it to you. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The writer says, speaking of Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. In fact, going back to John chapter 1, John writes in verse 2, and he was in the beginning with God. In other words, with God the Father. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ is presented in Scripture as the Creator. He is God. We are nearing the end of our class for today, so Pastor Steve will continue building the foundation for understanding and applying Philippians 2 verse 5 in our next lesson. You have been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These Bible classes of the air are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. It's a faith ministry supported by the prayers and gifts of listeners who are first faithful to their own churches. 
If you would like to hear today's class again or have it to share with a friend, please visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. You will also find previous lessons on the archives page. If you do share it with friends, we only ask that you do not charge anything for it. And there is plenty more on the website, so take your time and look around. That's versebyverseradio.org. Hi, this is Steve Kreloff from Verse by Verse Radio. I want to thank you for listening to these broadcasts. We appreciate your faithful support of this ministry. And I, and I want you to know that um, recently I've written a book about romance and marriage. It's called The Pleasures of Marriage. It's a verse-by-verse exposition of the Song of Solomon. I think it'll help your marriage. I think it'll strengthen marriages. I think it will uh, also help those who are singles, who are preparing to get married or hope someday to get married. This book is available on Amazon.com. And once again, it's called The Pleasures of Marriage. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Our class was the first part of a three-part message. If you would like to hear it all at once, you can order an audio CD by calling us at 727 441-1714 Leave your name and a number and we will call you back during weekday office hours. The number again is 727-441-1714 Please join us for the next Verse by Verse. We'll hear Pastor Steve unpack more of this great passage from Philippians and we will see more about the relationship between unity, humility, and service. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.